Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, the way we form memories is by adding connections. And so the more times that you perform behaviors you want to perform, the more connections you create that make it easier to perform that behavior again in the future. And, and we just had, so we have to recognize that, that a lot of what we're trying to do is to find ways to do the right thing in, in the context in which we want to do it and, and to help ourselves not to do the wrong thing. Um, in general, I think it's easier to rewire that go system than the stop system. I think the stop system can get a little bit stronger with practice, but, but if just like in a car, you don't want to ride the brakes, I think it's a bad uh, attempt at behavior change to try to ride the brakes there too, which means that it's really important when you identify the thing you're trying to change to frame it in a positive way, not positive as in peppy, but positive as in the, these are the actions I want to perform rather than things I don't want to perform. So you shouldn't say, I want to check my email less often. You want to say every morning when I come into work, I'm going to check my email for 10 minutes and then do an hour's worth of work before I launch my email program again. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Art, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Great to be here, Srini. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, it's, it's really awesome to have you here. I had a chance to uh, dig into your book, Brain Briefs, and got to do a little bit of research on your work as a cognitive scientist um, and got exposed to you through your publicist. But before we get there, I want to ask a question that I've asked a handful of times and has been really interesting to hear people's answers to. Um, do you have siblings? If so, what birth order were you? And what impact has, had, has that had on the life that you have led and the choices that you've made with your career? Interesting question. So I am the oldest of two. Uh, my my younger brother was about five years younger than me. Unfortunately, he uh, he actually passed away about about ten years ago, twelve years ago. Um, but but actually, that it, it had two impacts on my life. The the first, I think, is being the oldest by five years meant I got to be the only kid for for five years of a frustrated reading teacher who took time off. Uh, in between uh, my birth and the birth of my brother. And so uh, because she was a frustrated reading teacher, she taught me to read about as early as possible. And, and so I feel like I've been living with books for almost as long as I can remember. And that, I think, certainly had a big impact on me. And then actually, um, on the other end of things, being, um, you know, losing a brother and, and losing my only brother about, I guess it was in 2004, so about 12 years ago now, had another impact, which was for me to really think a lot about what I could do in my life, what I could accomplish, and to make sure that I left as little on the table as possible. I think whenever you have a relative who, who dies fairly young, it, it gives you a real wake-up call that no matter what you do, you're, 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 you have a finite amount of time and you got to make the most of it. Why do you think that something like that has to happen for so many people to actually have a wake up call? And, and the reason I ask that, you know, I, I, my friend Eric Wall said this quote by uh, Sergeant Kierkegaard in his book that all change is preceded by crisis. Mm. And I can't help but wonder why that is. Like, wh what explains that from a cognitive science perspective? Yeah, you know, part of it is, is I think just habit. So much of our life is driven by doing what we did last time, and that's really where our cognitive comfort zone is. And so all else being equal, I think we, we tend to fall back on doing what we did last time and letting each day be in many ways really similar to the one before. And, and you can go an awfully long time that way, particularly if you're at a stage of your career that's busy or if you're, if you're having a family of your own or, or anything like that, where you don't have the time to necessarily take that step back and say, well, what, what would I do if, you know, what would I regret not having done? And, and actually one of the things that, that I talk about a little bit in the book is some of this research on, on regret that um, actually Tom Gilovich from Cornell did a bunch of really great work that early on in, in psychology, uh, as with so many things, when you study a concept like regret, 
you take a bunch of college sophomores who are, after all, the fruit flies of psychology research, cheaply <laughs> available on college campuses. Um, you, you take them, you say, what do you regret? And it turns out you ask a bunch of 19-year-olds what they regret, and it's almost exclusively the dumb stuff that they've done. <laughs> you know, I, I got drunk at a party. I said this mean thing to a friend. I cheated on a test, whatever it is. Um, all the things that as you get older become really good stories that add spice to your life. And, and what Gilovich did was to go to older adults, people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and say, what do you regret? And the interesting shift is that, that by the time you're in your 70s, 80s, and 90s, you regret uh, a lot of what you regret is the stuff you didn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to me, I think that combination of reading that research and, and having a, a brother who died led me to say, all right, well, if I was – if I knew I was at the end of my life and looking back, what would I regret not having done? Mm-hmm. And uh, and for me, actually, one of the big things was was I had never learned to play the saxophone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in my my mid thirties at that point, and I actually, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks after that, went out and bought a saxophone and found a teacher and learned to play. And and now I'm in a band. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Um, but I, but I think that the value that crisis has in that is that it forces you out of your routine for a while and asks you to to contemplate what might you do differently that that isn't just following following along the day to day habits that you've got. Mm-hmm. So you know this this idea of you know what you would do um, or you know if if you look at your life and you know what would you do if you wanted to make sure you had no regrets at the end of your life. You know I, I like it. And at the same time, it, at moments, it feels like sort of a platitude. And I'm kind of wondering how you take it from being just a platitude to actually taking action on the idea. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely right. I mean, and, and, and of course, no one's going to have no regrets. Mm-hmm. Life's finite, you know. And, and so, and so it's, it, the, the real question is, can you be as mindful as possible about what your regrets are so that you can live with them? You know, I think, I think a lot of times you get towards the end and you think, ah, I wish I had taken advantage of this opportunity. But I think the other piece is that if you're going to identify one of those things that's a potential regret, you've actually then got to cash that out in terms of into a plan that will help you to actually change that. Mm-hmm. And, and I've done I've done a little bit of writing over the years on on the issue of how do you change your behavior? And, you know, you, you need you really do need to, 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 to build a plan and, and to be really realistic about your goals. I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a guy in his mid thirties, when I took up the sax with a, with a family and a career, uh, my goal was not to be Sonny Rollins in three years. Um, it was, it was really, actually, this is literally true. What I said was my, I'm taking up the saxophone in the hope that in 10 years I won't suck. <laughs> So, you know, I think that's the orientation you've got to take is that is is that you're going to try some of those things and at least at least, you know, uh, make a make a, a good faith effort to, to do some of the things that you realize you might regret later. And, and you know, just just identifying the regrets doesn't get you anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, without without actually being a willing to plan, be willing to fail. Right. Um, you know, another regret was I'd never learned to swing dance. Um, and I've now tried and failed. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Well, I, I want to come back to the saxophone and also uh, behavior change. But before we get there, um, I'm curious, kind of, you know, what has been the trajectory of your career? Like, walk me through sort of, you know, this being this voracious reader as a kid to how you end up doing the work that you do um, at UT Austin. Yeah. Um, so I, I was a... Um, I was a pretty decent student as a, uh, you know, through, throughout the years, you know, uh, through high school, um, went to, went to Brown university as an undergrad and thought I was going to major either in physics or economics. And as I like to say, I took an economics class and I didn't like it. And then I took a physics class and it didn't like me. Um, and so about, about the middle of my sophomore year, I needed to declare a major and I sat down with an advisor and I said, well, I, I took a bunch of computer science and I liked it, but I don't want to be a CS major. And I took a psychology class and I thought that was cool, but I don't want to be a psych major. And I took a, a, a linguistics class. I thought that was neat. I don't want to be a linguistics major. I took a, a, a couple of anthropology classes. I like those. I don't want to be an anthropology major. So what do I do? And the advisor said to me, you know, all of those classes you just mentioned fulfill the major in cognitive science. So it's possible you're a cognitive scientist. 
And, uh, and so I started taking more classes in that and realized, sure enough, that's, that's what I was. Um, I think if I had been born in 2015 or if I was going to school in 2015, I might've actually gone into computer science, but I, I thought, I mean, I was, you know, did a lot of programming was an AI type person back in the, in the, in the mid eighties when I was in college. And at that point, computers were really slow and stupid. And I was sitting in on a class on robot planning, uh, taught by a guy named Tom Dean. And, uh, and, and we read this paper in class on, on how, to, how to learn routes through a building or through a city. And it started out with a, a little study in it um, uh, where they, they tested human you know, people walking around, learning their way around the RAND building. And what I remember is that, is that Tom Dean, teaching the class, um, made a disparaging comment about doing experiments and all the other grad students who were taking the class laughed. And as, as this surly undergraduate in the class, I then gave a five-minute impassioned defense about doing experiments on human subjects to understand intelligent behavior. And amidst all the horrified looks I was getting from everyone in the room, I, it occurred to me I might be a psychologist. So uh, I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Illinois, uh, studying, studied with Dedra Gentner and Doug Medine, did a lot of work on reasoning, analogical reasoning, similarity, and, uh, and then got really lucky after that. I, I, I did my graduate work, spent two years at Northwestern doing a kind of quasi-postdoc, and then was lucky enough to get a job at Columbia University, hung out with a lot of great people doing work on motivation, and ended up doing a lot of Research, continuing the research on, on similarity, doing work on decision making and, and categorization and uh, did some work on how people communicate with categories inspired by some, some of the work that my colleagues at Columbia had done. Learned a lot about motivation and ended up doing a lot of research in that. And, um, and so, you know, I was content for, I think, a long time to, to write papers that get read by 30 of my closest colleagues. And, um, and that's been great fun. But about a dozen years ago or so, I began to get a little dissatisfied in the sense that I felt like uh, largely what I was doing was writing papers to get read by 30 of my closest colleagues. And that almost everybody I know has a mind and almost nobody knows how that mind works. And I started trying to think if there were ways that I could spread the word a little bit more broadly. And so... Uh, I started blogging for Psychology Today, gosh, almost about eight and a half, nine years ago now. Um, started, I've been blogging, you know, for other, other places as well over the years, Fast Company, Inc., places like that. Um, got involved in talking with people in companies who wanted to have more cognitive science in what they're doing, which um, was, has been a lot of fun and, and helped me get my kids through college. Um, and... Uh, and about uh, about four years ago, ended up connecting up with a colleague of mine, which is a whole other story, uh, to um, to do a radio show and podcast out of Austin called Two Guys on Your Head. And um, and so that, you know, my trajectory has been I still do a lot of research. I still have, you know, graduate students. So I'm doing a lot of this outreach. And then on top of that, I, I got hit up about six years ago to run a brand new program here at the university called the human dimensions of organizations. So we try to teach people it's a, it's a master's program. And we try to teach people in business about the people that they're going to encounter uh, in their work. Wow. Okay. So, so many questions, uh, as you might imagine. And I think where I want to begin with really is this idea of changing behavior and, and, you know, kind of what you know about behavioral change from a cognitive science perspective, because I can tell you right now it's, it's, you know, a few weeks after the beginning of, of the new year and behavioral change is something that is probably fresh on a lot of people's minds. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, you know, from a cognitive science perspective, what, what do we know about behavioral change or what has your research showed about behavioral change that is applicable to the lives of people listening? Yeah. So, you know, part of the problem is, you know, a couple of weeks after the, the first of the year, you realize you probably should have started trying to plan your behavior change uh, several weeks before the new year and not uh, in a half drunken stupor on the <laughs> first. Um, you know, the, what we know about behavior change, what makes it so hard is that that huge amounts of what we do are driven by habits. Those habits involve brain structures deep in the brain that don't connect very well to all that great storytelling apparatus in the cortex that that it involved, that allows us to tell the great stories about how we want to change behavior. And so one of the first things that you need to do is actually to become mindful of all the habits. You know, I tell everybody you got to keep a little habit diary 
where you you keep track of all of the uh, all of the habits that you've got for uh, for a couple of weeks just to know what you're doing. And then after that, you need to build a really specific plan that will enable all of the new behaviors you want to actually make it on your calendar and to be aware of all of those obstacles that are going to get in your way. Absolutely bar none, my least favorite book written in the last 25 years, a book called The Secret, which tells you, you, as you know, if you want to, to reap all of life's rewards, you have to think positive thoughts. And then it's got some whole thing about those positive thoughts will resonate with the positive energy of the universe. But but the problem with positive thinking is that it doesn't really force you to think about everything that's going to go wrong as you engage in this change in behavior. And all of those things you're concerned are going to go wrong, they may go wrong. And if you're not ready for them in advance, then they just derail your opportunities to make changes. And so you have to be aware of, of the, the things that are going to go wrong, the obstacles, the temptations. you got to plan for those. And you got to manage your environment. I think the single biggest mistake that most people make is that they they don't do a very simple thing, which is to make desirable behaviors easy and undesirable behaviors hard. And so I, I actually, uh, about 15 years ago, I lost 40 pounds. And one of the reasons I needed to lose 40 pounds was because I had a love affair with Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It's a single, it comes in a single serving carton. It's like a pint. You've probably seen them. You pull it out of the freezer with a spoon and you sit down on the sofa (laughs) and then you start eating and then you get halfway down and you take one more spoonful past halfway and it is simply impolite to put less than half back in the freezer. (laughs) So, um, so, and then of course you realize you've eaten more calories than some people in small countries get in a whole week. Um, so I made a remarkable discovery I like to share with people which is that you can't eat an ice cream that's not in your freezer. And, uh, and I think people, you know, they don't, they think that's cheating, right? But, but the fact is that why should you make it hard for yourself? You don't get extra points for staring down your temptation. So just get it out of the way. And, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of that. There's, there's more too. And, and, and as a, as a side note, I have another book called smart change. That's all about behavior change. But if people don't want to buy that, which I respect, uh, there's a, uh, I have a website, smartthinkingbook.com and under the smart change tab is a free journal you can download called a smart change journal. And you can actually work through all the exercises in the book on your own. So, you know, if you've gotten to the middle end of January already and realized that you've already blown all of your new year's resolutions, there's hope you can grab the journal and start working your way through it to, uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's nothing that says that you can only change behavior in January. Hmm. So what do you think accounts for the variability that we see in behavioral change when it comes to self-improvement efforts? Because you know, the thing that I, I have, you know, and I have mentioned this before in the podcast, I, I feel like self-improvement is broken up basically into three groups of consumers, people who will get a result regardless of whether they purchase whatever it is or listen to a program or go to the conference or attend the Tony Robbins seminar, like that's just <laughs> who they are. Then right. you've got the, the second group where you could be a catalyst. And then you've got this third group who is stuck in this endless cycle. And I think the self-improvement industry thrives on that third group of people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, and I, I'd love to, to, to shrink the size of that group. I, I do think that there are, there are two components to it. The first is that there are big individual differences in how much energy flows through people's motivational systems. So, so psychologists call that energy that goes to your goals. We call that arousal. Some people who, who, who naturally give a lot of arousal to their goals, those goals are extraordinarily powerful for them. And it's, it's very difficult to say no once they, get, uh, once they get activated. And so if you're the sort of person whose goals are very strongly activated, it's just, you know, those, those bad habits can be really difficult to get beyond. And in addition to that individual difference, um, there's a, there's a secondary system in the brain, which inhibits behaviors that you don't want to perform anymore. Um, so in the, in, in my book, smart change, I refer to that system that drives you towards your goals as the go system. Cause it gets you to go and do stuff. There's this secondary system I call the stop system, which is, it involves a lot of circuitry that runs through the orbit of frontal cortex, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the area of the brain above your eyes. And it, it it's, its function is to stop you from doing things. And I think there are also big individual differences in how powerful people's breaks are. 
So those people who are blessed with the ability to change behavior at will, they, they are people whose go system does not tend to overpower them and whose stop system is strong enough to tamp down most of their urges uh, in, in, a, uh, in a reasonable way. And I think those people who get stuck in the endless cycle are the ones whose accelerator far outstrips the brakes. And, and those are the people who need to do the most structuring of their environment. They need to do the most work of working with other people to help them all the way through the process of change. And they need to be the ones who are most tolerant of their failures and to recognize that behavior change sometimes is two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it's two steps forward and six steps back, followed by a whole bunch of steps forward. And so, you know, I, I think that, that it's just it's very easy when you're when you're in that mode. Uh, of having that go system that overwhelms the stop system to to just prevent your you know just to say well look I can't do it and to give up. Hmm. So is it possible um, to rewire either one of those systems and also uh, you know what what's involved in, in cognitive change um, you know in our lives like how, yeah. how can we change our cognitive capabilities I guess is the question. Yeah. So the beauty of brains is that they change. They rewire themselves all the time. I mean, not in grand ways that, you know, it's not like your, your, you know, areas of the brain that were never connected before suddenly connect. But, but brains, you know, the way we form memories is by adding connections. And so the more times that you perform behaviors you want to perform, the more connections you create that make it easier to perform that behavior again in the future. And, and we just have, so we have to recognize that, that a lot of what we're trying to do is to find ways to do the right thing in, in the context in which we want to do it and, and to help ourselves not to do the wrong thing. Um, in general, I think it's easier to rewire that go system than the stop system. I think the stop system can get a little bit stronger with practice, but, but if you, just like in a car, you don't want to ride the brakes, I think it's a bad uh, attempt at behavior change to try to ride the brakes there too, which means that it's really important when you identify the thing you're trying to change to frame it in a positive way, not positive as in peppy, but positive as in the, these are the actions I want to perform rather than the things I don't want to perform. So you shouldn't say, I want to check my email less often. You want to say every morning when I come into work, I'm going to check my email for 10 minutes and then do an hour's worth of work before I launch my email program again. Um, where, where now that's a set of actions you can actually perform that ultimately leads to the desired outcome. So I think you really can rewire that go system to engage in new sets of behaviors. We've all developed all sorts of new habits over the course of life. Um, but I think when you're the sort of person who does get overwhelmed by the strength of the goals that you're trying to change, uh, you may have to do a lot more work to, to, to get yourself enough repetitions of the new behavior to build the habits you want to build. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay, so um, I have to ask you a question about something else that just came to my mind as you were, were talking about that. So I just recently finished read, uh, listening to the audio book uh, about Elon Musk. Now, I don't know if you've had a chance to to hear it. I also uh, had a chance to, to interview Justine Musk, his ex-wife, uh, where we did a, an entire conversation about the psychology of visionaries and you know how people like this who achieve what she calls extreme success have just certain behaviors that are built into them. And, yeah, you know, based on, on the knowledge that you have as a cognitive scientist, I'm curious what accounts for the sort of Steve Jobs-like, Elon Musk-like, Richard Branson-like success. And, you know, is that just something that, you know, those types of people are inherently capable of because of who they are? Well, I, you know, the problem, of course, with identifying some of them is is we, we don't have the good control condition where we have the people who have a lot of those characteristics and have, you know, and have not succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look, I. I will say that that success in any field requires a lot of work. It requires knowledge. It requires learning a bunch of things you didn't know you needed at the time you you learned them, but turned out to be useful later. I mean, I think the the story Steve Jobs tells about sitting in a class and learning about fonts. It wasn't like at the time he went, "Oh wow, that'll be really helpful for the computer I'm going to design in eight years." You know, it it was just a piece of information that he took in, and I, I think that you know I. I I've often talked about this idea of the expert generalist, the, the people who just voraciously learn about all kinds of things without regard to exactly how that's going to be useful later so that they then have this store of knowledge that they're going to be able to use later to, uh, to, to help them to, to be more innovative and to try new things. I think that's, you know, that's certainly a piece of it. Um, I, I think that willingness to continue working on things in the face of failure is is something that is extraordinarily important and you know i think one of the reasons why a certain number of the people who succeed as entrepreneurs dropped out of school is because school tends to teach us mistake minimization rather than overcoming error because you know from the first day of first grade you you get your spelling test back everything that you got wrong gets marked with a red x so you learn that the way you succeed in life is to make the fewest mistakes possible which may help you in school, but doesn't tend to help you afterward. And I think that 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 people who who succeed in in the way that that Jobs and Musk and Branson and folks like that succeed is that they actually try stuff and then recover from the errors rather than giving into them or minimizing the number of opportunities to make errors. Um, I think both of those are you know are extraordinarily important. Um, I. You know, some number of those people tend to be a little difficult to get along with, too. I mean, I, 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 I did not read 
the book about Musk. I did read Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs. And my feeling is that that Steve Jobs' greatest strength was actually not his difficulty in getting along with other human beings, but rather his deep understanding of what it was that people did with technology and his willingness to adapt the technology to the things people do. Right. So the 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 you know, everyone when they talk about the i the iPod, talk talk they talk about the wheel and how cool that was. But really the success of the iPod wasn't the wheel, it was iTunes. It was the fact that there was this piece of software where even if you weren't an expert in computers, you could plug the device into your computer and it took care of everything else all by itself. It didn't hurt that it looked cool, but but it was it was really the fact that you could integrate this really seamlessly with the rest of your life that characterized a lot of the great innovations that Steve Jobs made. As a side effect, he also didn't seem to be a very nice person, at least from what I've read. He's not somebody I met. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that that's the active ingredient there. I think it really was much more that that deep understanding of how things integrated with people's lives. Mm. So I want to look at. Um a couple of different areas and kind of, you know, what we can use, you know, sort of cognitive capabilities for to enhance these areas. So the first one I want to talk about, this is very much for my personal need as a writer and a creator is, you know, sort of focus, flow, productivity, and attention spans, and what we know about, you know, uh, cognitive science that we can use to improve in those areas. Yeah. Well, of course, one of the things we want to do is to just to try to minimize the number of distractions that we create in our environments. You know, one of the things that I think people don't appreciate is the degree to which the human mind and minds in general are learn a lot about time. So uh, one of the things that happens these days is that we have learned to pull our cell phones out of our pockets about every 12 minutes to check to see whether anything's come in. And as a result, your brain creates a little interrupt from whatever you're doing about every 12 minutes saying, isn't it about time you checked your email or your tweets or something like that? And I think what we need to do is to clear that environment out a little bit, put the phone away, off so we can't get at it, shut the email program off and put it away and create work environments where the brain will learn when I'm in this environment, I shouldn't be interrupting you to do something else. And I think that that's that's a really important piece of it. I think another part, particularly for writers, and this is something that we that we talk about a bit in brain briefs, is um, we you have to just do it. You know, the best writers are people who you know every day or almost every day have a period of time where they just sit down and get their writing done. And even if they don't write something that they love that day, they got some work done and they made progress. You know, I, I think a lot of people in in these kinds of fields do a lot of self editing. Right. And, and, and they're worried that that the thing that is that they're about to write is doesn't look like a good finished product. And, and you know, you have to remember that that it rarely does, that the first drafts of almost everything are horrible and that it's by successive approximations that you finally find something that that is the thing that you want other people to see. Uh, when, when my my uh, partner in crime, Bob Duke and I. Uh, wrote brain briefs we were lucky enough that that i love to fill blank pages and he loves to edit and and so i you know i would just bang stuff out without regard to how good it was and he was kind enough not to tell me how bad it was but just (laughs) fixed it (laughs) and uh and then we would go back and forth after that and and that was a partnership that worked extraordinarily well and you know i think to me that that willingness, you know, what we know about creativity, and I've, I've done a little bit of work on things like brainstorming. What we know about creativity is that the people who have the best ideas are the people who have the most ideas. And uh, there, you know, quantity ac- actually ultimately predicts quality. And so, you know, that really means that you just got to get stuff out there and, and play with it and not and not wait and wait until you have the brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that was really interesting to me, so the, there's two other areas that I want to touch on. You mentioned time briefly, and I want to talk a, brief, a, a bit more in detail about time perception, because I think the, the question of, you know, why does time seem to get faster <laughs> as we get older? That is something that I had always wondered about, and it was neat to see a, a scientific explanation of it. And it's funny because I had the exact, some of the exact thoughts that you echoed, but I'd, I'd love for you to explain that and kind of, you know, what impact that has um, on our cognitive capabilities. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it is it is scary, isn't it? I mean, what happens <laughs> with time? You know, I, I turned 50 last year and, and you know, I, and suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching my 51st birthday in a, in a, in a month. And I, uh, I, it doesn't seem like it was that long, certainly compared to, you know, the distance between being seven and being eight, you know. Um, but what we know about time perception is, is two things. One, just, you know, there is a simple proportional model there that matters a little bit. I mean, you know, if you're seven years old, the distance from seven to eight is, is you know, it's 12 percent of your life. Um, whereas, uh, you know, if you're 50, that difference between 50 and 51 is, is you know, a little under two percent of your life. So so that's that's certainly a piece of it. But the but the most important element in time perception really has to do with the landmarks uh, that you that you lay down in the process of living your life. The more landmarks there are, meaning the more unique, novel, interesting things you've done, the longer that period of time seems to be. And so another thing that happens as people get older is they get into a routine in life where every day they kind of get up, go to work, uh, you know, come home, do whatever they do at home, go to sleep, get up again. And that routine has very little deviation in it. And as a result, you, you don't, your brain doesn't really think it has that much to learn because you're just doing what you did last time. So I think that, that one of the things that, that people uh, need to do is to, is to create more new opportunities to disrupt the brain's predictions by doing things that the brain didn't expect to do, which then tells your brain you'd better learn this. And the more of those things that you learn, when you then look back in time, you remember all of these things you did, and it makes the passage of time feel longer. And the paradox in that is, you know, some of the studies suggest, for example, that um, in the moment, time goes fastest when you're engaged in doing stuff and slowest when you're not. So sitting in the doctor's waiting room when the doctor is half an hour behind schedule feels interminable because all you're paying attention to is the second hand journeying around the clock. Whereas when you have a really great conversation, for example, we've been talking about a half hour already and it's hard to believe that 30 minutes has gone by uh, because we're, we're not really paying attention to the passage of time. Mm-hmm. But when we look back on this experience later, at least for me, it might be different for you. Uh, <laughs> You might be thinking, all right, get on with it already. Um, but but when we look back on this later, there will be more landmarks. This hour will have seemed longer, whereas at that hour you spend sitting in a waiting room will seem to have flown by in retrospect because there aren't really any landmarks for you to latch onto. Hmm, interesting. Um, so you know, you've kind of alluded to learning, and I want to look at this idea of learning through two different lenses. One, I want to have you talk more in detail about learning how to play the saxophone as an adult and what you have, you know, what you've applied from your work as a cognitive scientist to the process of learning how to play the saxophone. Um, having been a, a musician in high school, I'm very curious about this because I played the tuba for nine to twelve years, and I stopped and. I've never been able to learn how to play a musical instrument since. So I'm personally very curious about this. Um, you know, I had, uh, um, a guy, uh, you know, the guy who wrote the book, the talent code, Dan Coyle was here and he mm-hmm. was saying, he said, look, he's like, you'd be amazed at how good you can become. He said, you're probably not going to open for guns and roses, but he said, you could probably go and, you know, impress the hell out of your family and friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. So I want to hear about that and, and kind of what, you know, um, you've learned about learning through that process and, you know, how your own research is tied into that. Um, the other is, you know, you alluded to, to learning languages in the book. You guys, I know, dedicated a section to that. And one of the things that I'm very curious about is, you know, the process of learning a language, because I speak two languages um, and I can tell you that I can't can't possibly figure out how the hell I learned to speak our mother tongue. We were in India for six weeks, and when we left, I was fluent. Uh, mm-hmm. And to this day, I don't, I could not break down the structure of how that happened, other than the fact that my grandmother didn't speak English, so I had no choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So we'll we'll start with the sacks, then we'll go to languages. Cool. Um, yeah, and 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 I'm I'm in complete agreement, by the way, on this idea of when we think about talent, that that if your goal is to is to learn to do something, talent doesn't matter that much get out there and do it. If your goal is to be the best in the world at something, you'd better have a little talent. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and I, I would never tell somebody to open for guns and roses on tuba, but that's a different, <laughs> that would sound terrible. Can you imagine <laughs> that opening guitar riff on the tuba? That would be horrible. <laughs> would be interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I think slash would take on a whole new meaning. Yeah. He wouldn't be very happy about that. Uh, but, um, 
but yeah, so I, what, what I would say is for me, one of the, I mean, from a, from the standpoint of, of the, the kind of research I do, you know, I think one place where, where, um, that helped in learning the sax was I really did try to pick a consistent time of day to practice to make it as easy as possible to develop a habit. So one of the things I said was, look, every day after dinner, you know, at that time, my, my oldest kid was seven. So I'd put him down to bed and then I'd go play the sax. And so what that meant was as soon as I put him down, uh, I, I, you know, all of my, my habit system came to bear to say, okay, now it's time to play the sax. And so I was really kind of driven towards that after a couple of weeks of playing. I think that was a big help. I think the one place where I should have listened to more of my, of the research in cognitive science and it, I, I got dragged into it was, um, wasn't, it's not that hard to get a vaguely saxophone sounding sound out of a horn. Mm-hmm. What's hard is I wanted to learn to improvise and I didn't really have a great background in music theory. And one of the things that I did was resisted learning all my scales because mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's just going to be boring. And, uh, and my teacher was kind enough to just let me give me enough rope to hang myself. And so for about a year and a half, I would try and learn to improvise without actually knowing my scales. And he would just kind of shake his head sadly, but that was it. <laughs> and, and until I came to the re- realization myself that just like you need to learn your basic arithmetic facts, if you're going to do any complicated math, uh, okay. um, you're going to have to learn your scales if you're going to learn to improvise. And so I came in one week having decided that my warm up every day was going to be playing each of the major scales. And, uh, and then he started giving me exercises that involved, you know, learning, learning that, but he, he waited until I had my own motivation to want to learn the, the scales and figured he'd just take my money otherwise. Uh-huh. Um, but I, but you know, in deep down, I knew that I needed to, 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 to create habits out of all those scales so that I didn't have to think about them in order to do something more complex. But, uh, but I was still afraid to be bored by that. So I, I think those are those are at least a couple of things on the saxophone side. Although I will say the other bit was having realistic expectations. I mean, I really I really did say you know, ten years you know before I felt like I'd be decent was a good enough path for me. I didn't need to be great after a year or two. And about ten years in was when I started playing in a band for the first time. Wow. And uh, and now I'm in a uh, now I'm in a ska band in Austin, uh, <laughs> which uh, which by the way is called Phineas Gage. Uh, after the guy who had the railroad spike blown through his head, um, but uh, which led me to write a song called "Bottle in Front of Me," but that's a, a whole other uh, thing. <laughs> so, um, before we get to the language piece, I want to ask you one other question about the music. Um, do you still take lessons? And also, what is happening in the brain when, like, developmentally, when you're learning a musical instrument as an adult? Yeah. So um, I do still take lessons. I this semester I haven't been as diligent about it just because uh, things have been pretty busy. But yeah, I do. I wake this poor musician up uh, at at eight o'clock on Thursday mornings, and he gives me a lesson. Um, but but he's been great about that. You know, as far as the brain, I mean, I think that that you know, there's there's several things going on, and I think one of the wonderful things about taking up an instrument as an adult is giving your you know the, giving you this opportunity to develop new connections involving your motor system i mean i think you reach a certain age as an adult you don't necessarily play lots of new sports you know you don't you don't necessarily learn a a lot of new motor actions and and so one of the great things about taking up a musical instrument is that suddenly you're put in this situation where that whole motor strip of the brain and all, all of that now becomes extraordinarily active i think that's a piece of it and then you know one of the other things that's actually really nice for me as a scientist in, t- in taking up a new instrument is when you learn to improvise, they talk in, 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 in all this literature on improvisation about the difference between what they call head players and heart players, um, where by which they mean some people approach improvisation analytically. Here's what you're supposed to do given the music theory. And then there are people who approach it from a, an aesthetic standpoint. Let me, here's, here's what I want to play. That's really beautiful. Uh, I think scientists by and large tend to be, uh, head people <laughs> as a, as a rule. And so learning to express a combination of, okay, I've learned all this theory. Let me, let me just trot that out, you know, along with, let me, let me try and make something that's legitimately pretty, um, was an interesting experience that required a lot more listening than I think I was used to, particularly as a professor. I mean, what professor do you know that actually listens, right? (laughs) I'll Um, tell that to my dad, who's also a college (laughs) professor. (laughs) Um, so you know, I think, 
I think that's, you know, those are, those are a couple of things I think going on in the brain though, that, uh, that, you know, I think that happens in general, but, but particularly as an adult, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great experience. And I, I tell everybody, you know, it's just, it really is never too late to, to go out and pick up another instrument and, and have some fun with it. Cool. And what about the language learning piece and well, how, you know, how do you explain what I experienced? So what, how old were you when that happened? Um, let's see, five. Five. Yeah. So that's, so, so the, the amazing thing about language learning, so we learn our native language just, you know, that because we're immersed in it, mm. you know, remember what's happening. We just, it washes over us. We use it. And somewhere in the middle of that, you know, first year of life, we start saying some words and, and by somewhere in your, in your twos, you, you start chattering to the point where no one can, can keep you quiet. Um, and then we have a, a, a remarkable capacity to learn several languages as long as we learn them young. So, um, so, you know, you learn, if you pick up a language before puberty, you're much better at it than if you learn it afterwards. So five is a great age to be learning another language. Mm -hmm. Um, in large part because, well, for a couple of reasons, one, because the older you get, the more analytic you get about things. And so you start trying to learn the rules that go with the language. Like, okay, so, you know, English has a subject and then a verb and an object. So now what does French do? Or what does, you know, German do or whatever? Um, and, and how do I keep track of all these different conjugations and all this crazy stuff? And, and so part of the problem is you try to learn it anal analytically, even though the brain isn't doing that kind of analytical work when it's learning language. It's, it's actually making use a lot of a lot of the statistics uh, of the words that are being spoken to you, uh, and and you're becoming sensitive to 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 a lot more of that information that's really implicit, hard to hard to really put uh, a rule, an explicit rule to. Another part of the problem, though, that's equally important is that in order to learn language, you got to use it. You actually have to speak it and 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 uh, produce words and produce sentences and get in the habit of of creating sentences that can be comprehended by other people so that you engage in real conversations. And the older you get, the more embarrassed you get of the prospect that you might make a mistake. And so the less likely you are to actually even try to produce the words if you tried. So, so that's another piece of it. And then there's a third component, which is there are some aspects of language that defy rules altogether. And my favorite example of that is the is prepositions. So if you think about, for example, in English, we could say the cup is on the table and we could say that the painting was hanging on the wall. So we use the same preposition on for both of those. But other languages like Dutch actually use different prepositions for something on a table and on a wall. And some languages use make bizarre distinctions that that uh, that speakers of another language don't even recognize exist. So, for example, Korean uses a different preposition for loose and tight fit around things. So if you are if you had uh, like a mouse in a pipe, like walking through a water pipe, um, that would be a different preposition than the one you would use for a ring that was tightly fit on a finger. So the idea is that that these distinctions are ones that 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 languages make in in what seems like an almost arbitrary way and the only way to learn those prepositions is by letting them wash over you and and doing what i affectionately call using the force which basically means allowing this implicit learning system that you have to to figure it out on its own without developing rules and adults it gives adults fits to learn that, but, but learning, learning a language learning a, a second language at the age of five is almost ideal. And it's sort of a shame that in America we, we wait till exactly. exactly the wrong time. Well, that, that, that's precisely what I was going to ask you. I, you know, knowing all of this, I'm kind of like, I, I, my thought was, why is it that, you know, we don't teach people foreign languages until they're in junior high? Like, I don't think I remember the option to take <laughs> Spanish as a class until I was in seventh grade, which right, seems ridiculous to me. Because this is America. If you want to speak to us, speak English. <laughs> 
So I, I want to ask you one uh, sort of a last uh, question in one area that I want to explore, and that is sort of the implications of the cognitive science research that you've done around social interactions and our relationships with other people. Um, you know, the, maybe the, the easiest way is to look at it through the lens of a particular example. I remember reading the, the section in Brain Briefs on forgiveness, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting um, in terms of what the impact is on the brain of something like forgiveness. I never knew that. Um, yeah. You know, I understood it from sort of a very new agey sort of, hey, you're not going to hang on to all this resentment perspective, but it was really interesting to look at it all through a science perspective. So I'm curious um, if you could tell us a little bit about sort of, you know, what are the implications of the cognitive science research that you've done um, in that area and also just in, in our, on our relationships in general with other people? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about any relationship is you, you can't get too deep into a relationship before you do something. <laughs> that offends somebody else. I mean, you know, it just even if it's unintentional, right? I yeah. mean, we just that it that's the way it is. And so, you know, we we have to find ways of getting past that so we don't we don't hold on to that stuff forever. Question is what goes on with that? And and partly, right, saying sorry or you know, or for, you know, and telling somebody else that they've been forgiven is is your way of saying, "All right, I'm going to I'm going to let us move forward from this without letting that past event have have too much of an impact on the future. But the really fascinating part, and this is the stuff that I love from the research, is that when you forgive somebody for something, that actually helps you to forget the gory details of what they did wrong. Which, you know, now again, there are there are times where somebody does something that's simply unforgivable and you don't want to forget. And, you know, that's fine. But in a lot of cases, you need to get beyond that event and and actually forgiving somebody else allows your brain to start losing those details so that your future interactions with that person don't have the same negative emotional resonance that they had in the past. And I, I think that's just I've always found that really fascinating. And it, it I, I think and it's a it's a very adaptive thing to do. I mean, we're a we're a social species. If we allowed every grudge to build up, we would quickly be a non-social species. Mm. Wow. Wow. This has been uh, really, really interesting. And, and I, I knew it would be just based on, on having you know gone through a, a bit of the book and, and having done some digging on your background. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, that's a, it, that's a fascinating question. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that, that people have to be willing to, to just to try things. You know, I think I think one of one of the, the biggest limiting factors in people's lives in general is their their attempt to edit their life story in the forward direction. So they have this vision of who they're supposed to be and how things are supposed to come out. And they make decisions about what they are and are not going to do on the basis of that vision. And I think that one of the one of the I think one of the recognitions that, that had the pr most profound impact on my own life was in the recognition that um, life is chaotic in the forward direction. And then the narrative story, the narrative storyline that you have for your life only becomes clear when you look back on it. And I think that those people who live their lives embracing the chaos of each moment and try to make their way through it, um, those are the ones who give themselves the best possible chance of doing something that that will be really interesting and and recognized as interesting later. Wow. Well, this has been just absolutely fascinating and awesome, as I expected it would be. Um, where can people learn more about um, you and your work? Um, well, lots of different sources. We have a, a podcast that I do with my buddy Bob Duke called Two Guys on Your Head, available wherever podcasts can be found. Uh, the book is called Brain Briefs, and you can find that uh, you can find a, a backlog of our of our podcasts and information about Brain Briefs at uh, twoguysonyourhead.org. Uh, that's that's all one thrown together as one word. And I have another another site called smartthinkingbook.com, which also lists information about Brain Briefs as well as a couple of other books. So you can check me out there. And uh, like everybody else these days, I'm on every imaginable form of social media, including Pinterest. So, you know, feel free to find me on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all that good stuff. And always love to hear from people. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I can be found. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.